Shut up and sit down. Welcome to another episode of the Super Movie Studies Podcast, a show about comic book movies approached from every angle, and a community of nerds discussing how fiction relates to non-fiction. I'm your comic book culture host, Michael Maurer, joined by the movie maestro, James Skyler Hutzma, and the scientific scholar, Grant Austin. I want to talk. <laughs> I've been thinking about you and me, about how this is going to end, about who will end up killing who. Perhaps you'll kill me. Perhaps I'll kill you. You know that, don't you? You asked if you oh. were reading Ben's parts. God and damn it. I, I forgot. That's my bad. <laughs> it's, uh, you were doing so well last time. I know. I know. You broke I, the streak of one. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I did any better, I'd want you to pay me. So <laughs> Continue. All right. SMFC is your premier movie discussion podcast. Every week we continue our journey exploring our favorite subjects, superhero movies. Every fan sees the movies differently, so we gather some amateur experts to discuss certain aspects of the film. Whether it's money, comic books, music, science, or one bad day, SMSP talks about it all in this week's episode. Batman the Killing Joke. And yes, there will be spoilers. Uh, real quick, super fans. Uh, now that intro stuff is out of the way, you may have noticed if you are a regular that last week we did not have an episode. I apologize. Things got tight. We couldn't schedule record times. Um, life is super hectic right now. Moving, jobs, volunteer, all that jazz. So TMNT two out of the shadows is just. <laughs> Not going to happen for a nice long while. It's back in the shadows. It's back in the shadows. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Um, I know if you were looking forward to that one, but more so just looking forward to the fact that we've gone 83 episodes, 84, without missing one um, that wasn't scheduled, and I think that's impressive. So We're not quite to South Park levels, but good mm-hmm. things nonetheless. Yes. So I want to apologize for that, but you'll be getting Batman the Killing Joke this week, and you should be happy. First opinions on Batman the Killing Joke, hit me up, Grant. Uh, okay, so uh, I liked it for the most part. Um, I didn't care too much for the beginning where it was, you know, Barbara Gordon narrating and everything, but uh, I really liked the second part. I liked that they brought back uh, Mark Hamill uh, for the... Um, the Joker and 
Oh yeah, Kevin Conroy. Yeah, I was very excited that they brought back Kevin Conroy for Batman. So the whole second half was really awesome, but I, I could have done without the first part. But I guess they needed to make it a full length movie. So you know, got to do what you got to do. I guess. Popcorn Skyler. Uh, Batman the Killing Joke, the graphic novel, is awesome. Uh, Batman the Killing Joke, the adaption of the graphic novel, is not so awesome. Um, it's great that we have the cast from the original Batman the Animated Series uh, essentially reading the classic lines from the Killing Joke, but that's essentially all it's really good for. Um, there's a completely unnecessary first half hour that you know, maybe it'd be an interesting story on its own. Uh, when you try and lump it in with the killing joke, it's always going to fail in uh, comparison to it and just detract away from essentially the material people want to see from the movie. Uh, I think it's a borderline uh, cheapskate animation project. I didn't think there was a point where I thought, oh, wow, the animation looks really great. And uh, I saw it on the big screen, so I could see basically anything that was going on, you know, where they could get finite details. It was pretty cut and dry instead. Uh, It's just not a terribly great adaptation, unfortunately. Popcorn Mauer. In my opinion, okay, Skylar, if you're going to drink something, you're going to need to back way away from the mic. That was gross. Yeah. <laughs> it was just a lot of gurgle sounds, and I will Ex- not have it. <laughs> Excuse me while I take on my squid form. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so, in my opinion, DC Animated used to be this real hot ticket commodity. Every time there was a DC Animated movie, even TV show, that was some really good stuff. Back, even way back in the days of Sub-Zero and Mask of the Phantasm. Oh, Mask of the Phantasm. And then they pick it up even. Batman Under the Red Hood. I'm trying to think of something that wasn't Batman that was great, though. <laughs> oh, Superman versus the Elite. That was some good uh, stuff. Justice League War had Batman, but it wasn't really about him, and that was awesome. Uh, I wasn't a fan of Justice League War, but Justice League Crisis on Two Earths, I was. That was some good stuff. But that was still way back. And now they've been dumping out a new animated movie every year and then been flip-flopping between Batman, not Batman, uh, or Justice League, really. And I've sort of waned off because they're getting really fast, really cheap, real quick. But Batman the Killing Joke felt like a step back into the quality section of DC animated movies. It's just, it was a little refreshing Because I know there's arguments about that 30-minute prologue with Barbara and how it doesn't really mesh with Killing Joke. And I know you kind of brought this up, Skylar, but I still like that story a lot. Um, I think there's a lot to go there about the Barbara-Batman relationship that really doesn't get explored. Is it kind of creepy that he has sex with her? And, you know, that made a lot of fans upset because they see... Barbara as like a surrogate daughter to Batman and that can freak people out but I really like the fact that they address they address that Batman has weaknesses really emotional physical stuff like that because there's so many stories out there where Batman is just 100% bad ass you know and that can be cool but it gets kind of boring in that in and it gets it gets a little absurd 
when you're saying, oh, he can do all this and this and this and this. But remember, kids, he's human, just like you. But he's really not, because he can do a lot of stuff <laughs> that normal people can't. Absolutely absurd things. Take a lot of bullets. Uh, close himself off emotionally and still be able to, like, attract friends. And in this instance, we see how, like, if he got close to Barbara... Um, and we're going with best case scenario, he's like 29, she's 24, 23, right? Graduate working at a library, he's at his peak Batman-itude. Stretch. I'm going best scenario, all right? Worst scenario is he's 35 and she's 21. Keep going. Okay. (laughs) Um, And, like, that relationship, psychologically, I feel would happen, right? You would get intimate with someone if you were doing vigilante stuff with them. If you were constantly like looking out for each other, um, and I have no way to relate to this. But what I what I mean to say is, Batman has a weakness with this. In in um, he has a don't stand so close to me moment. Where yes, if you know Sting, how that whole song erupts is is just like whoa, this is kind of creepy. But at the same time, I'm not saying stop. And then things go too far, and then I get in trouble. Good. That's a human reaction, um, and it makes an actually interesting story. And then we get to Batman the Killing Joke. Um, and it, that but fact- Before you move on, Mauer, I just want to say that like, I do agree with you that that's an interesting storyline that I think they should maybe pursue in a graphic novel or another animated film. I just thought it was out of place in this film, like kind of agreeing with Skylar that it, it just pales with the original killing joke storyline. So it, it just felt out of place. Not that it was bad, just that it didn't really belong in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was to the next point of, it just sort of shifts directions after he's, she retires and now everything becomes Alan Moore's writing <laughs> before it was all Brian Azzarello and he's real good. Don't get me wrong. But Alan Moore's style is, like, completely different. And that whole... What? Let's see change narrators, which is always really awkward when you go from, like, having the full first half being Barbara Gordon narrating and then you have Batman narrating and it just doesn't work very well. Yeah, that's true. That also... It felt like just such a... um, uh, I think because I had read the book several times that, like, I started reciting lines in my head that it didn't seem like that abrupt of a change... Um, but I could tell, I could definitely relate if some people who haven't read it were just like, that's real weird. And that whole Barbara story was used as a tactic to give us uh, some pull, some more um, Barbara is intimate with Batman. And therefore, it means more when she gets hurt. To me, it came off much more as a, we're sorry, we just used Barbara as a plot point to cripple her. Uh, you know, the basically the controversy that Killing Joke is known for. And, you know, someone in the producers or writers said, we're going to make things right from 30 years ago and put this really fucking lame story on in the beginning. It's not lame. I liked it a lot. But it did not make me feel any more emotional pull to Barbara's tragedy. All right. I don't think that purpose was achieved in any way. Um, if there was, yeah, there might have been a way to do it, but I want to say that they did a really good job with what they had, 
And beyond all else, that voice acting is some of the best I've heard in a long time. Wow. Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill came out with their A game for this one. Damn. When Mark Hamill was switching between Jack Napier and Joker, flawless. Absolutely flawless. We never really saw Bruce Wayne, Batman, Swip Swap, but the Joker, Jack Napier stuff, excellent. And Tara Strong's really good. Of course. Um, she is. It's just, I didn't, just didn't focus on it because it turns into a Batman Joker story. It starts out as a Barbara story that you're kind of not really invested in, and then it just sort of ditches it and says, boom, you know what's going to happen. <laughs> Batman Joker story. Boom. And, with scary short people prodding Commissioner Gordon. <laughs> Ray Wise just being like, I guess I'll be in this movie. <laughs> All right. So move on to some money stats then. Production budget, $3.5 million, solid for an animated picture. But this movie actually came out in theaters. What? For one night only. Uh, Is this only the second film to do that after Mask of the Phantasm, or have there been other ones? Oh, animate uh, DC animated films, yes. Other animated films, no. No. Which other ones were out in theaters? Like animated movies? Uh, hey Arnold, yeah. the movie. Um, I meant more like comic book ones, not just in general. Oh, okay. You got to specify here. I'm like, <laughs> there's a ton of Big Hero Six. Uh, comic book movies, animated Big Hero Six, as I had previously mentioned. Um, on the Marvel side, nothing Avengers wise, nothing iron man captain america wise made it to theaters so yeah just these two i guess you could say the lego movie on some mm. level but yeah. mm-hmm. yep yeah um yeah it was and this is a model that uh it looks like dc animated is going to pursue because the next movie they're putting out um the batman return of the C- caped crusaders with adam west and stuff is also doing a one night only theater event coming up in october so it worked out pretty well for them because they actually brought in $3.7 million from the U.S., add on about 586000 from uh, Australia, Mexico, and New Zealand together, and it brings it right around a worldwide gross of $4.4 million. So solid investment. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to look up the next scheduled DC animated movies. You said... Uh... Uh, Return of the Cape Crusaders is out in a few days, essentially. What? Yep. I don't see that anywhere on this Wikipedia article. All I see is Justice League Dark, Teen Titans, uh, Judas Contract, and then Batman and Harley Quinn. All of which sound great. Yes. But, um... Oh, this is not grouped into their universe, I guess. Oh, yeah, because it's oh, a different well, universe. Yeah. Dirk, whatever. Okay, I got you. No, I'm the the way they have it separated is that all ever since like let's take a look how far back are we going to go do you think? Uh we'll go with Flashpoint Paradox. Yep. Ever since Flashpoint Paradox, they've been in the same universe. That was also a good one. That was not Batman related. Yes, true. Real good. Forgot about him. Yeah, cuz before that was Superman Unbound and I don't think that one counts. And Dark Knight Returns definitely doesn't count. And Superman versus the Elite would be a stretch. All-Star Superman as well. Yeah. Uh, okay, next topic. 
Uh, what's the next topic? Comic books. Oh, it's, comic books. It's you. Minus that divergent tale. All right. Of me not knowing what the Cape Crusader movie is. Uh, <laughs> so ooh, we know about Batman the Killing Joke. All right. But in case you don't, you pretty much saw it word for word with the movie. All right. That second half. As soon as, you know, Barbara drops the backpack, that end of that scene, and then we're back with Batman going and talking to fake Joker in the asylum. That's when the audio or the the writing, the script, melds together with Alan Moore's exact words and dialogue. So Batman the Killing Joke came out in 1988 by Alan Moore and Brian Boland, uh, who is, by the way, the co-creator of Judge Death from Judge Dredd. <sighs> One of the most badass villains of all time. Just really, this dude is can't die, and he kills everything. The uh, the crime is life. The sentence is death. Judge Death. He's, why isn't he in a movie? All right. So Boland and Moore were both at like the peak of their careers with DC. Pretty who pretty much offered them free reign to do any project they wished despite Moore's recent falling out with DC on the tail end of producing Watchmen. Uh, Boland was the one given free reign and wanted to do a project with Alan about Batman and the Joker. And DC's like, fine, you can use Alan. (laughs) You can use Moore. That's all right. We'll deal with it uh, because your work is so great. Both creators are infamous for their meticulous processes and inability to meet a deadline. They both expressed dissatisfaction with the product of Batman the Killing Joke, uh, with Moore commenting on how the conflict involved two fictional characters with no relatable experiences to real-world experience, uh, real-world situations, therefore presents itself in uninteresting tale, <laughs> really pre- pretentious way to talk about your own book, <laughs> and Boland disliked the fact that he didn't have enough time to color the book himself. Instead, John Higgins came in for that part and felt its color tones hindered the final product. Uh, It was a bit too colorful for his liking, too much purple and pink. And he was like, I kind of want black and white. If you want a look at Brian Boland's version, there was a re-released version of the book that came out in 2008 with Boland's personal coloring supplemented instead of Higgins. So the book is only 48 pages long. That's really short. Printed in the prestige book format uh, as a side story that's not connected to the DC continuity at large. Due to the popularity of the book, though, it was juxtapositioned into continuity with DC retiring Batgirl in Batgirl special number one, July 1988, four months after The Killing Joke, and her reappearing as Oracle in John Ostrander's Suicide Squad series, the 23rd edition, <laughs> which I think came out just a couple, uh, yeah, just a few months later. Also, Death in the Family storyline, where Joker murders the second Robin, Jason Todd, is also published the same year, shortly after The Killing Joke, so that Batman has a double personal vendetta against Joker, and DC comic books got real dark after 1984. <laughs> uh, the, the book is one of the most heavily thematically explored graphic novels of all time, 
because it pits Batman and Joker as mirror images of one another. People who uh, both experienced random tragedy in a short amount of time and had tragedy shape them into the psychological messes that they both end up being. That, mixed with the mutilation of Barbara, marks many comments by feminists of the treatment of female characters in esteemed, quote-unquote, comic books, where it's like a comic book can only be good as long as the female character exists to be tortured and mutilated to drive the male protagonist. Uh, That's a famous... Uh, fallacy? What do you call that? Theme. 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 It, the, um, uh, the exact title of it is Women in Refrigerators. Coined by Gail Simone in 1994 um, because there was just an absurd storyline with Green Lantern, Kyle Rayner, where he found his girlfriend murdered in a refrigerator. Yeah. <laughs> it was just... there. Like, who else are they going to shoot and paralyze in this comic book to get the rest of the story to progress because he needs to mess with Jim Gordon and he only has one relative living in Gotham at the time so uh, Bullock um, also it's also to the fact that Bullock when... is not a relative of Jim Gordon probably... I don't think Bullock existed in this did he mm. I thought he was made later I don't know he came out in the 70s um, but uh, it... As much of an argument could be made that he could have just paralyzed Gordon because, you know, yeah. physical <laughs> injury wouldn't has never done anything bad psychologically to a Batman character. Oh, wait. So, the no, the argument refers to the fact that um, female characters are rarely restored back to their um, original or uh, a, a better version of themselves after the mutilation, whereas male characters are. Uh, Batman in Nightfall comes back, and it's planned that he comes back instantly. Superman, same thing, planned that he comes back almost instantly. But when when Barbara gets hurt, nah, she's dead for a long time. Jason Todd, now there's an argument. Um, and when like Gene Loring goes insane, she's insane forever from now on. If you know the, who Gene Loring is. Uh, pretty much every character's girlfriend has gotten hurt in some way. Uh, Lois Lane in Injustice. That's a rough one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Surprisingly, not in the 80s or 90s, but like four years ago. <laughs> Don't worry. Lois was doing enough sketchy stuff beforehand. She spent a day as a black person. Oh. <laughs> That's uh, It was progressive at the time, Skyler. Come on. Progressive DC. at the time. Oh, at the time. At the time. But really, sh- really like reflects the racism of how we felt <laughs> um, when you look back on it. Oh, goodness. But moving on, uh, that's all I got to say about Killing Joke. So let's get to that music section. I'll save my question on the story for later then. No, hit me up now before we transition, bitch. Okay, so this movie, in reading about it beforehand, all that stuff, you know I had done the graphic novel. Uh, it actually taught me a new theory about what's going on. Uh, story-wise, in that I had never realized there's the theory out there that for the end of the story, that some people believe that Batman killed the Joker. When Grant Morrison... That was the original intent. Mm, kind of. It's on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Alan, Alan Moore never confirmed. He only said 
something like I wanted to make a Batman story that was a final Batman story to end all Batman stories, like he did with Superman in Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow. Um, it was like a Superman story to end end it all. But uh, like a lot of people just sort of read it as more of like the psychological thing, and, and you're right, Skyler, that that's mostly what people saw. But and then it's I think it's only been recently when I remember when Grant Morrison showed up on Fat Man on Batman and talked about this that this sort of blew up in the comic book community for a little bit of just people going wasn't that the whole thing the whole time and other people going no I had no idea <laughs> a nice mixture of the two because the laughing stops that's the the thing there's no snap sound um, but it's rumored that yeah he snaps Joker's neck. After um, he tells the joke and he sort of just because he went crazy himself. He finally broke, laughed at a Joker's joke and killed him. That is the uh, interpretation I had. I didn't realize was so popular out there. Um, I had to read up that. Oh, you know, you can't tell in the graphic novel because it just says ha ha. But in the movie, you know, only Batman keeps laughing and Joker mysteriously stops laughing. And I was like, oh, that might explain why that was a thing yeah that's just them winking at it i think Uh, (laughs) and really it's a fiction you know and we're going back to what Moore originally said it's a fictional story about two fictional characters and their conflict and if he did kill him or if he didn't kill him what's that even mean to you (laughs) (laughs) what does it matter it's just a stupid story i did on commission about two fictions. <laughs> Remember, kids, Alan Moore is the definition of you can be a genius and also just be fucking wrong at every turn. Whoa. <laughs> you can just be a little just a little crazy sometimes. He's a bit he's a bit backtracky sometimes. He's not very consistent. Um and you can change your mind, but you gotta stick with something, all right? <laughs> right. Uh, and hates interpretations of his work. <laughs> yes. Okay. That's all I had for story mm-hmm. stuff. Music for Batman the Killing Joke is done by not one, not two, but three longtime Batman veterans. They are Christopher Carter, Lolita Ritmanis, and Michael McQuistian, who make up the uh, company team, whatever you want to call them, Dynamic Music Partners. Uh, They were responsible for a lot of the later music written for... Uh, Batman the Animated Series, the new Batman Adventures, Superman the Animated Series, and Justice League. And while Christopher Drake has been doing a lot of the music for the DC Animated Universe, this is also a return for them, much as it is for Mark Hamill, Kevin Conroy, etc. That said, it's not a terribly prominent musical example here although there is certainly an aspect we'll talk about that is plays a big part in the story um but the first track i have on the docket is all it takes is one bad day that line that defines the whole story and also pretty much defines what they're going for musically with this film let's take a listen
very menacing. Uh, that was probably one of the more eventful tracks I've listened to from this uh, score. Uh, it's very dissonant. It makes me think of like a rainy city at night, which is essentially what Gotham City is, but all very not melodious. Oh. <laughs> They got the aesthetics of Gotham pretty uh, pretty down pat in this movie. I like how they took detail with the, the neon signs flickering everywhere. They actually put a little bit more effort into the background, and I think that sort of popped it a little bit, ad- adding a little bit more flair to the film. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, most of what you hear is just kind of mood music, really. That was more of an action track than anything here, but probably the most prominent a uh, musical example I could dig up from this movie is the fact that they actually wrote a song for it. Um, Joker has his little musical moment uh, when he's torturing Commissioner Gordon, and they actually took the lyrics and um, the material from Alan Moore's uh, graphic novel and put it into the song I Go Looney, which is pretty... You know, if you're going to try to translate that to screen. It's a pretty decent uh, example. Let's take a listen. Uh, it's kind of funny because um, up until this point, the Arkham games have started doing this thing where Joker will more and more often sing something, you know, be it a voicemail or a hallucination or whatever. So I was interested to see that they continued with that little thought train. It's a, it's kind of a fun song. It is. <laughs> I was a little jarred by it when it first started happening. I was like, oh, wait, I don't remember this. I should have reread before I watched. I was too. <laughs> I was like, weren't they making a big deal about how like hard edge this is? And they're going for like... <laughs> that really felt like a Batman animated series moment. Yeah, it's like, hey, guys, how do we step this up to the next level? Show tunes! <laughs> What's that final track, homie? Uh, that final track is Genie Flashback, which is actually an element I really appreciate about this music, is that for the flashback scenes, they do go into this kind of like old-school dive bar jazz. Oh, noir as F. F. So noir. Uh, and that's a ace musical choice, I will say. <laughs> Cue it up.
Mm. Like it. <laughs> I like it a lot. Uh, that's oh, I, I'm really impressed with the music of Batman the Killing Joke. Even there's there was I don't think you had uh, samples of this, but during the Barbara parts when Batman would appear, right? Mm. Um, there was always a a something like a grand Batman entrance, um, and that would really kind of match up with the action going on. And I went, it's been a while since we've had that. Nah. Music that matches the action? Damn. Putting in some effort. Just not plugging it in where it uh, fits. Or not really. It's just not staying consistent because you have two separate stories. All right? We were expecting one story. We got a different one that wasn't exactly the mood um, of the other one. It might have been different if Joker was involved in the first half of the movie. Maybe that would have changed things a bit. Um but then it's just so weird that you don't see Joker for the first 30 minutes and then it becomes all about Joker Batman. Funny side note, um, for the theater one, they did like a 15 to 20 minute little mini documentary on Mark Hamill's career as the Joker, which made it all the worse when the movie started and there's nothing to do with him. (laughs) Yep. That's how it goes. Any yep. more music we got, Sky Guy? No more music. Oh, that means it's time to go to our Kentucky resident. How are you down there in the south there, boy? I'm doing all right. Happy we're finally moving on to the best section of the show. Oh, good. Yep, you're absolutely right, Brick. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I can just turn your mic off. You know, I can just do that. Hey. I guess you could, but <laughs> what are you going to fill the next, I don't know, 15 minutes with? And that's the show tonight. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> all the good parts have been said. Uh, we're cutting out that science section because it is boring as fuck, as you've all told me. <laughs> all right, what are we talking about, Grant? Okay, well, for this movie, um, there wasn't a whole lot of science stuff to look at because it's a pretty straightforward film, you know, the first part just being... Um, the mob and the second part just being a, a Batman Joker psychological thriller. So most of what I'm going to talk about is psychology stuff, which in and of itself is pretty interesting. Uh, to start out, um, I want to talk about the likelihood of Barbara even surviving the encounter where she gets shot because it's very unlikely that she would have. She would have probably just died, Okay, which kind of is a bummer for those of you who like Oracle. Also kind of consistent with Alan Moore. <laughs> so so she gets shot in the midsection, right? Yes. And that's supposed uh, to represent like the bottom part of her vertebrae being destroyed. Yeah, which, I mean, that's true. Getting shot there, if it were to sever her spinal cord, she would definitely be paralyzed from the, the waist down, probably actually a little bit higher. It would have radiated up. It's probably from, you know, about the bottom of the ribs mm-hmm. down. She would have been paralyzed. Um, which is obviously unfortunate, but the the bigger issue is is that she got shot, you know, through the stomach area. So uh, all of her stomach acid is kind of spilling out into her uh, abdomen, and then also, you know, if it hits the intestines, you're likely to get sepsis, which is really bad, and then septic shock, and then you you just die from that. So Sounds all sorts of bad fatal. things. Plus um, the she doesn't actually get found for a while because Joker, you know, um, strips her down and takes pictures and everything and then just leaves her there and takes 
Jim Gordon away, and so then she gets found later. She probably would have bled out by that point. Probably, unless Joker stopped the bleeding. Which, I'm not really sure why he would bother. Like, what would be the point in doing that? What a twist! Uh, to keep... He's all about agonizing people. Yeah, um, but wouldn't it agonize Jim Gordon more if his daughter was completely dead? Uh, Jim Gordon would never know, right? Because he'd planned to make him go super mad before ever meeting Barbara again. True, but I don't know. I don't see the point in him saving her. Because even then, like, if he's never going to know either way, why go through the effort of uh, stopping the bleeding and risk somebody showing up and then you getting caught before you can actually do anything? Mm. Uh, well, he's the Joker. So, also, no one heard, all that, no one heard that gunshot? <laughs> Barbara dies, and that's the end of her character mm. in real life. Yes. But obviously, this is a comic book, and even though we're getting rid of Batgirl, we don't want to get rid of Barbara Gordon completely. But that's about all of the medicine or like actual science stuff I've talked about. So let's talk about psychology, because that's always fun. And yes. almost science. So the the whole premise of the book, obviously, is, you know, Joker trying to prove that he's not actually all that crazy, that, you know, anybody who has a bad day can go insane. Uh, and he's trying to prove, you know, that him and Batman are the same and that he can do the same thing that to Jim Gordon is what happened to him, uh, even though they even leave his past fairly ambiguous in the story. But assuming it's the, the Red Hood stuff and that he falls into the chemicals and everything. Mm-hmm. So he's just trying to prove that. And so there were experiments at Stanford that kind of proved this a little bit. They did uh, a scenario where they had some students, some volunteers, act out being prisoners, and then other ones act out being prison guards. And they realized that uh, all these people had, like, really clean records. They were not criminals. Um, They came from wealthy, middle-class families. I'm pretty sure all of them were white. So, like, very, you know, clean slate as far as, like, who they had doing the experiment. Mm -hmm. And they showed that the prisoners, some of them kind of started exhibiting, you know, psychotic behavior. Some of them had to be, like, let go from the study early to avoid actual trauma. And the the prison guards uh, ended up being really uh, manipulative and, like... um, treating the people who were playing the prisoners really poorly, even though they all knew it was just a study. So they knew that these were just normal yeah. kids. It but, was a simulation, right? And they yeah. put all these people in prison, a.k.a. like a Stanford area. Uh, it was uh, not even a prison. It was not in the basement of the psychology building at Stanford. Yeah. And this is uh, this was a, a what? This lasted 48 hours? This lasted six days. Oh, okay. Never mind. Um, so six days. It was supposed to last two weeks. The uh, the girlfriend of the um, doctor who's doing it, his name was um, Philip Dr. Zimbardo. Uh, his girlfriend was just like, you, you need to stop this. This is not good for these students at all, both the ones who are prisoners and the ones who are guards. Yeah, because so what, what would, what would they do? Days. What what were some examples of what the guards would do or what the prisoners would do that would drive them to that point? Because they weren't just being held in cells, were they? Uh, Well, they were. I mean, it was a simulation, so they were held in cells. Um, Some of the uh, prisoners staged a riot after the first day, Um, and then the guards were like, okay, well, now we're going to try and, you know, 
psychologically torment the prisoners by setting up a hierarchy of who's good prisoners and who's bad prisoners. So the people who weren't involved in the riot got special treatment from then on, and they tried to um, have the some prisoners um, harass other prisoners in exchange for better treatment. Oh. It was just you know very vindictive the whole thing. Yeah, damn. And then, and then, then, then after like, like uh, four days, I think one person, uh, the exact quote is from Dr. Zimbardo in the report that he put out about this was number uh, 8612 then began to act crazy, to scream, to curse, and to go into a rage that seemed out of control. That's the exact quote. It was just he began to act crazy. Okay. And so then they, they let him go. And that was after 36 hours. So that's not even two days. Yeah, so I guess it takes more than just one bad day. It takes like one and a half bad days, I think. Yeah. So you just got to adjust the quote, and it's still true. Uh, but, yeah, they were basically trying to test this uh, theory of situational attribution, which is basically what Joker talks about in the, the book, is that it's all about what happens to you and not who you are. Um, because situational attri- attribution is... You know, it's based off the situation that's attributing to who you become rather than dispositional attribution, which is, you know, internal characteristics, your genes or, you know, your upbringing is what causes you to be who you are. And in reality, it's probably a little bit of both. But he was trying to show that situational attribution has a a really key role. Mm -hmm. Nature versus nurture. In this case, nurture will really mess you up if you do it wrong. Well, not even really that, more of nature versus nurture versus trauma. So, like, nature and oh. nurture on one side, and then, you know, one event like on the spe- other side. Yeah, not, a, not like an upbringing, you know, your environment, but a specific event causes you yeah. to completely change your nature. Because the, the dispositional attribution could be, you know, your environment growing up. Like, as a kid, you could be, you know, fairly ignored by mm-hmm. your parents. Not that your parents were bad or that they... Uh, starved you or anything, but just that they ignored you more than they should have. Yeah, uh, that would be more dis- dispositional attribution. But if they like physically beat you one day, that would be more of the situational attribution. And now you're affected by that for life. I wonder have they done yeah. a follow up on those Stanford students? I wonder. Uh, I don't. I don't know. Uh, that would be interesting. I'm sure because they stopped it so soon that a lot of them just went on to be pretty normal. They were just undergrads and. You know, they stopped it before it got too out of hand, and anybody that was really traumatized by it, they let them out of the study early. So mm-hmm. hopefully nothing too bad happened to any of these people. Yeah, you could never pull that off today. When did they do this experiment? Like the 70s? In the 70s, yes. Yeah. 1971. Yeah. In they the could, summer. They could not even come close to doing something like that in the modern collegiate system. Oh, for sure. <laughs> this was actually funded by the Navy. Oh, fact, so <laughs> fun. <laughs> Do you still have one more topic tonight? Yeah. So what I what I was kind of building into from this is, you know, Joker is trying to say that Batman and Joker are the same because they both had this trauma and that drove them to be these characters. Uh, and, you know, that's true. They both had trauma and they both went on to be fairly crazy people. But <laughs> there are a lot of differences between Joker and Batman situation, which is why I think this dispositional attribution comes into play here. And it's not just situational, because if you look at uh, Batman, 
he was much younger than the Joker. This is all assuming the yes. um, Jack Napier history is correct. But, yes. You know, Bruce Wayne was much younger than Jack Napier when the, the trauma happened. Um, the situation that they were in was much different. You know, Bruce Wayne is this billionaire child who, even when his parents die, still has a really capable caretaker in Alfred, mm-hmm. whereas um, Jack Napier is this really poor, fairly out-of-work comedian uh, who's struggling to pay for him and his uh, girlfriend, let alone the kid that they have on the way, and he gets involved in crime. So it's obviously a very different situation. And then, you know, the type of trauma is really different. Obviously, they both lose people, but Bruce Wayne isn't mutilated or anything. He goes on to live a fairly, you know, normal I guess for a billionaire life, he has a, a a parent or guardian taking care of him, and he you know probably goes to private school and everything. Um, and yeah, he's internally traumatized by his parents' death, and he vows to avenge them. But it's he he leads a pretty normal life after the trauma. Whereas you know Joker is mutilated, his skin gets bleached, his hair is green. He can't really go on to live a normal life after that, even if he were to try to. It just it wouldn't work. He'd be shunned by society. So that's kind of contribute as well mm-hmm. so it's, it's really not just the situational thing that joker's trying to show it, it has to do with a lot more and it's it's probably why um jim gordon doesn't go crazy either because you know he's having a rough time this is obviously very traumatic <laughs> all of this but he's specifically not being mutilated he'll be able to go back to society He's uh, much older and has seen a lot of this stuff before, so it's not anything that's new to him. Outside of the daughter um, thing. I mean, the daughter thing is obviously really bad, but he's gone through personal struggles as well, because at this point... He's divorced. Uh, he's divorced, and he doesn't even get to see his son very often, because his son lives with his ex-wife, so... And his son is a psychotic maniac. Yeah, so he's he's dealt with this stuff already, and he's learned to cope with it. And then, at the same time, he's got a think in the back of his head, okay, Batman will come save me because I'm Jim Gordon. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm friends with Batman. So <laughs> I think that's a fundamental flaw in Joker's plan is that he just doesn't understand that it's not just the the one thing, the, the trauma, the situational attribution. There's a lot of um, dispositional stuff that comes into play as well. More mutilation. Top-notch analysis, Grant, I must say. Yeah. Thank really, you. really digging that stuff. Uh, any more, any more uh, science you got going for me? Uh, no, that's pretty much it. I'm not. I'm, I know this wasn't your specialty, but I think you nailed it tonight. Oh, thanks. Okay, so um, drinking game rules. Uh, Anytime you want uh, the movie to just move on to the original source material, take a drink. Oh, sh- it's not a. You'll be teetering out for the last forty minutes, but the first thirty, <laughs> you're like, oh. Well, that's why I need more than just my one drinking game rule. Come on, guys, step up. <laughs> um, every time they fall back on the, like, really, really stereotype gay best friend in the prologue. <laughs> the... We're still just getting real drunk in the first 30 minutes, though, and not drinking through the rest of the movie. Uh, take a shot during that uncomfortable realization where the unintentionally implied, um, unintentionally implied that Joker raped Barbara. Uh, by when Batman went to go visit the prostitutes, and they say, yeah, he usually comes by here when he gets out because, you know, he's usually likes to have a good time. He must have found a new girl. 
Oh, I didn't catch that. I didn't even notice that. Yeah, right? Wow. Alan Burnett went on record saying, whoa, we did not intend that at all. When I read Killing Joke, that is not what I got out of the interpretation. And when I produced this movie, that is not at all what I meant to say. If I had known people would have seen it that way, I would have taken it out. Well, yeah, because you don't really see Joker as someone who has those types of urges. Yeah. Uh, also, he would have taken pictures of it, right? If he's already doing it, like, <laughs> I mean, I'm just going with the theme of the character. If he's already going that far, I feel as if he would just like take a step in farther. Uh, well, yeah, because I feel like that's more traumatic than the other stuff he did to Jim Gordon, <laughs> showing him like pictures of him raping his daughter. That would that would probably do it in for yeah Jim. I think that would yeah that would tip it. Take some drinks when Batman beats beats up some circus freaks. <laughs> Where did those circus freaks come from? <laughs> Are they just like on standby somewhere? Yeah, did they come with the guy who was selling the circus? Seriously, <laughs> they just show up and they have an automatic hatred and for Batman and loyalty for Joker, uh, where they will just like mur- straight up murder Batman. Um, Maybe they're just in like a cult and Joker's their leader. Uh, that'll do it today. Super fans, Super Movie Studies is recorded and produced by Tribe Cop Productions. Uh, we are on iTunes. If you get the episodes there every week, or you can just get them from the website. But if you do go on iTunes, you should rate us and subscribe and get new episodes every Monday. Uh, consistently, every Monday, I will try my best. Because <laughs> I know I've let you down once, okay? But you'll have to forgive me. Nope, no forgiveness, Mauer. You're fired. <laughs> Don't pay me. You can't fire me. <laughs> and we are also on Twitter. Um, Twitter Tom is our man there. Twitter challenge this week. Skyler, hashtag one bad day. Yes. Your, your idea. Let us know about that one bad day you remember that should have driven you over the edge. Any little thing. Any big thing. Any uh, subsequent amount of things. All that happened. In one it, bad day. I knew it was going to be one of those days when the customer walked in and asked, you guys sell books here? <laughs> <laughs> Skyler works at a bookstore. Okay. Check us out at Super M Studies. Super Letter M Studies, that is. I know I said it last time with Flash Gordon, but it's been a while since Twitter Tom's been on the show. We need Twitter Tom back. We need Twitter Tom back for an episode. Was the last time Twitter Tom was on the show the last time I was on the show? Probably. Okay, uh, finally, that I'm not updating tribecop.com. Oh, my God. This sounds so awful that there's like 10 to 20 episodes of me just hyperbolizing tribecop.com, and I just have to take it off my list of things to do. I don't have time. I don't have anyone I can like pay to do it for me. So it's just uh, going to sit at the current status that it is, um, and I will perhaps continue uploading episodes to it for fun, but, um, iTunes, 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 people, iTunes. This is great. We have like 10 weeks now of like you hyping yourself up for tryupcop.com and just this general decay of life bringing you down. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally we reach today and it's like, fuck it. It gets it gets real busy, all right? I got to say, it gets real busy, 
and I just don't have the time for it. I currently am acquiring income from four separate sources, which means I have four jobs, um, one full-time and three part-times. And one of them is website development on a different website. (laughs) So ironic. Um, So I'm just, just swamped, gang. And I'm so we will keep making episodes because this is fun. This is this I can do easily. I can make time for um, and enjoy, and I can upload and edit and all that jazz. But any more, and it just it it swamps me down too much. I can't. I don't have time for it. Um, I can't make time for it. Is what I mean to say. Uh, but that'll do it today. Ending on such well, a high hey, note. Even though the website is being updated, can fans still email you if they want to be on the show? Oh. You're absolutely right. Thank you, Grant. Thank you. Supermoviestudies at triopcop.com. All right? You want to be on the show. We haven't had a random fun guest in a while. Last one was Connor, I believe. He was the last fresh guest. Um, and he was fun. Perhaps Flash Season 2 will come back around. Schedule is also still on the site, and that'll stay there. Um, that is the only place you can get the schedule. Uh, perhaps we'll start announcing next week, though. What's next week? This is our oh oh this, are we starting the horror stuff? This is October. Yes, yes. How <laughs> have I forgotten to mention this? <laughs> Goodness, we're getting to all the good stuff at the end, so I hope you've stayed stayed tuned. But we are in October horror month. Okay. All right. Thank you. Classic horror sounds. Woo. All right. Uh, so we're trying to uh, commit the creepy. Uh, comic book movies and sort of make them work with the schedule for this month. I believe we've got Batman Killing Joke opening up the gates, which you are listening to. Next week should be Constantine Season 1. Good, good, good. Constantine Season 1. I believe I'll have Kleppy on for that episode because we shared a moment. Uh, then we're going to come back for Hellboy. I um, think, yeah, Hellboy was... Hellboy, very um, horror-esque, knowing Guillermo. Getting real close to Halloween and dropping down uh, 30 Days of Night, which we had skipped, but now we're going back to. That's a good one. And then rounding off on October 31st, Creep Show. I'm so excited. I can't even. I can't even. I couldn't even. Creep Show, a collection anthology of horror stories that are all inspired by EC Comics. Yes. So get your. Anus is puckered, because it's going to be a good fucking time. It's so good. All right. That's it today. (laughs) Ending on a high note. Um, I'm your host, Michael Maurer. James Kalahatsma. And Grant Austin. And I hope you all have a super scary week. And a good day, I guess. Yeah.